Hello, and welcome to Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host, Zach Beecham, here as always with Jennifer Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Hola. Today, we're going to talk about what sounds like the most implausible diplomatic fight in geopolitical history, one between Saudi Arabia and Canada. It all started last week when Saudi Arabia arrested several female human rights activists. One of these women, Samar Badawi, had relatives living in Canada, relatives who had fled specifically to evade Saudi persecution. The Canadian government was not happy about the arrests, and the Foreign Ministry of Canada sent out a tweet in which they urged the Saudi authorities to immediately release the people who had been detained. And then Saudi Arabia lost its damn mind, and they basically declared diplomatic war on Canada. Uh, this, I'm laughing because it's ridiculous, it's but insane. it's not actually funny in I some I can't ways. believe it's, this exists. It's really serious, right, the things that they did. So, Jen, walk us through the actual consequences here. We were in the dumbest timeline. So, yeah, so Saudi Arabia sees this tweet, and they immediately freak the fuck out, and they send out a bunch of tweets. They recall their ambassador back from Canada. They announce that the Canadian ambassador in Saudi Arabia is persona non grata, which is basically— get the fuck out of the country, in diplomatic speak. Uh, and they give them 24 hours to literally get the fuck out of the country. And they did a bunch of other stuff, Alex. Yeah, I'd understand if they kind of stopped there, but they didn't. They effectively froze trade with Canada, which at the end of the day actually isn't too bad because Saudi Arabia is Canada's 17th largest trading partner, and it effectively boils down to like Canada sending tanks and Canada importing oil. So it's not that big a deal, but still it's kind of stupid. Um, but it got weirder. No, it got weirder, of course. Like, now Saudi's saying they're going to pull out the around 15,000 Saudi students that are in Canadian universities and other schools, and including Saudis that are getting medical treatment within Canada. Like, people who are sick will be pulled out because of this whole spat. Like, excuse me, unplug your IV. We're taking yeah. you to a different yeah. country. No, and, and that's, that's what I mean by it's serious, right? Like, people will get hurt. These students who are studying in Canadian schools or will have their lives totally disrupted, Right, like who knows what happens to these people if they can be transferred from Canada to another hospital right. safely. These are mostly Saudi citizens who are affected, by the way, not Canadians. Right. The right. Saudi government is shooting its own citizens in the foot to send a message to Canada. And speaking of the message that they're sending to Canada, so there's this unofficial Twitter account that's not part of the Saudi government itself, but has, according to the Washington Post at least, has connections to the Saudi government. It's basically like youth Saudi activists who are pro-government. And they have this Twitter account and they tweeted out this really not great idea of a tweet. It was a picture of the Toronto skyline with an airliner flying what looked like directly at a building. The CN Tower, which yeah. is the tallest yeah, building in exactly. Toronto. Exactly. It had this Arabic saying on there, this proverb, he who interferes with what doesn't concern him finds what doesn't please him. And it looked eerily reminiscent of 9-11, a plane flying at a building in the World Trade Center. And just for those who don't remember, 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi citizens. So people saw this and were like, what the fuck? Are they threatening another 9-11? Like, that's insane. And quickly they were like, no, 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 we meant, you know, something else. We didn't mean that. And they like, took it down. The Saudi government announced that they had, like, told the guy to close down the account. But, like, it was part of this whole broad thing that, like, it escalated to the point that people were worried they were threatening another 9-11. And, and the Saudis are, are keeping up this propaganda offensive in a variety of different other ways that are not quite the level of threatening a terrorist attack, but are still deeply dishonest and or just plain weird. So the Saudis have decided to implausibly go on the offensive on human rights, accusing Canada of 
being a serial human rights violator. And while there are legitimate problems with Canada's treatment of its indigenous minorities specifically and uh, police violence in Canada as well as in the United States, like it's not to say it's a perfect country, but like compared to Saudi Arabia, uh, it's like a goddamn angel, right? And one of the weirder Saudi accusations is that Canadian right-wing professor Jordan Peterson, the guy who you may know as uh, the author of Lobster Theory about how people are basically Dominant like lobsters. Hierarchy. Yeah. And, and it's, he's kind of like a right-wing folk hero, anti-political correctness crusader, if you haven't heard of him. And our sister podcast, Today Explained, has a really awesome episode with Jordan Peterson explaining and kind of talking through his wacky ideas. That's true. I was on that yeah, one. Yeah, Zach is on there. Yeah, Zach was on there, so hey. check it out. Anyway, Saudi media said... Jordan Peterson is a political prisoner in Canada. This is not None even remotely <laughs> no, no, it's not even remotely true. He claimed that hypothetically he might one day be arrested for refusing to refer to somebody by their chosen gender pronoun, but he he was not arrested for this and his interpretation of the law was wrong. And, <laughs> and also, this, just to be clear, this guy, the only thing that's remotely accurate about that is that he is in Canada. <laughs> right. Like, and to compare that with the actual people that Saudi Arabia has imprisoned, so um, Samar Badawi, who is the woman who's one of the female human rights activists that kicked off this entire fight, not only is she uh, an internationally renowned human rights activist in her own right, but she's also the sister of uh, Raif Badawi, who is this Saudi dissident blogger who's been jailed for years in Saudi Arabia. And he's been, like, sentenced to public, like, brutal public whippings, public floggings. So you have that regime that doesn't have due process that actually like takes actual political prisoners and whips them publicly trying to be like, actually, it's you, Canada, who are the human rights violators. And it's just got, it's just bizarre. Okay, so this is all just wild, right? And really hard to understand why it could be happening. So let's let's dig into the reasons here. Let's understand what's really going on and why the Saudis have reacted so disproportionately. Okay. There's sort of a weird history of this. So in 2016, Saudi Arabia killed 47 people in a mass execution. And Canada, the Canadian government, the Trudeau government, spoke out against it. And so Canada does have a history of calling out bad Saudi actions when it comes to human rights issues. But it didn't come to this. Right. It's it didn't normal. come to this. Right. It didn't it didn't blow up we to We did that. We used to at least call out Saudi and other countries. Like this isn't like a weird thing to happen. What's different is the leadership in Saudi Arabia right now, specifically the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman or MBS as everyone calls him because it's easier than saying Mohammed bin Salman. MBS. No, don't call him No Imbus. one calls him Mimbus? No, no, nobody calls him Why not? I feel like we should call so, him Mimbus. It's a weird no, thing to okay. say. No one's so MBS. That. Fine. So, <laughs> Go home, Alex. You're drunk. <laughs> so MBS is the 32-year-old crown prince, which means he's the next in line to be the king of Saudi Arabia. And he just ascended to that position a little over a year ago. So this guy, he was hailed in the West as like this ambitious, energetic, young reformer who's, you know, upending the conservative kind of status quo and ushering in this bold new era of modernization. And that's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to tons of experts about this. Like, unanimously, they call him crazy. Like, he is just a crazy person who has built up this image that he is this reformer. But other than letting out some steam with letting people drive or letting people go to the movie theater or, you know, Black Panther was the first movie they showed and people went, yay, they have a movie theater and they're showing Black Panther. The whole sort of system of Saudi Arabia is still the same. It's Wait, still repressive. Can I can I interrupt you? And yeah. I want to drill in what crazy means, right? Because you don't mean like in the sort of derogatory mentally ill sense. So I would no, no. say he's crazy as a fox. 
right? Well, like he's crazy in the sense that the things he wants to pursue in the world make no sense. But he is shrewd and intelligent in the way he's marketing himself. Okay, so let's go back to that. Like you said, the thing about lifting the ban on women driving, right? So he has actually, to be fair, initiated some modest reforms. So he did lift the ban on women driving. He did allow like movie theaters to open. He's allowed some more mixing of men and women in public spaces, things like that. But he's also ruthlessly consolidated power at home and cracked down on dissent. And one of the ways he's done that to bring it back to Samar Badawi is by arresting some of these same activists who championed the reforms that he's now pushing through. So Samar Badawi was one of the people who was advocating for lifting the ban on women driving. He lifts that ban and then arrests the people who had that idea. Yeah, it's kind of like, how much power do you have when you get to do something so insanely hypocritical and so insanely against the own image that you've created and you can get away with it and like nothing will matter at well, all? That, that's the critical point about MBS that I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with the Saudi system don't quite grasp. Like Saudi Arabia historically has been a kind of consensus-driven government. And I mean, consensus among the ruling family, right? It's not like the people actually had a voice in this, but it's foreign policy and it's social reforms and so on, where some kind of push and pull between different members of the House of Saud. Right. Different royal lines, essentially. But MBS came in and he consolidated power in his own person. Everyone sees him and not the actual king as the key mind behind Saudi Arabia's foreign policy. And what he's done, in effect, is turn a kind of quasi-aristocratic system into a dictatorial one. And so he just calls the shots on everything. And when we say consolidated power, what we literally mean is like he took over. So the way, you know, you talked about the consensus system, the way Saudi Arabia has operated to basically make it stable is that they shared power among these different branches of the royal family. Because the royal family is massive. We're talking like thousands of princes and princesses eventually when you get down the line. So they're basically like several different kind of strong branches of the family. And they would give like one branch gets the defense ministry. You get like the military. The other one gets the interior ministry, the really power like, you know, like the FBI basically and like the police. The other one, you get to handle energy and the economy. So that way, like everyone gets their peace and no one can do too much without working with the others and not one person can shake things up. He just came in and took over literally all of those things. He also, under the guise of this anti-corruption campaign back in November, he rounded up hundreds of influential Saudi businessmen, including many members of the royal family. So really rich people, really powerful people. He imprisoned them in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Riyadh. Uh, There's some amazing scenes. It was like the worst slumber party ever. And he seized millions of dollars in their assets and basically froze all their assets and said, look, I'm taking some of your money. It's going back into the Saudi coffers, the government coffers, and you fucking play ball. You listen to me. And people were like, "Uh, I guess I'd like to get out of my hotel prison. So he's ruthlessly pursued power and— now he can basically do whatever the fuck he wants. And he's doing all of this on the international stage as well. I mean, he's made some pretty major mistakes, one of which is instigating and continuing the war in Yemen, which has led to hundreds of thousands of, of dead people, millions Im- impoverished and and malnourished and sick that the U.S. is helping support, by the way, and a blockade, uh, just leading a diplomatic blockade against Qatar, um, that the U.S. is also somewhat weirdly supported, also kind of not. Like, it's just this whole situation where he's isolating Saudi Arabia and hurting itself on in the region. But, like, being wildly aggressive. Yeah, no, being—I mean, like, because he does—because he can. And so 
because these things are going so badly, there's sort of a reason that puts the Canada thing in context. Because now that he's getting a criticism from abroad and at home about the Qatar issue and the Yemen issue, he's speaking out when anyone then criticizes him. Right. The lens through which to understand all of this Canada stuff is not Saudi national interest. It's not like what is good for Saudi Arabia objectively. It is what Mohammed bin Salman wants to do to maintain power and to assert his own authority and to distract from these debacles and human rights violations that Alex was describing. He wants other countries to know that if you go after Saudi Arabia's human rights record, you will face retaliation. So he wants to generate running room for himself and whip up national sentiment at home. And Canada, it's not like the United States. It's not, you know, the most powerful country in the world and Saudi Arabia's prime patron. It's not an EU country. So you, you know, you start a trade war with one of them, then you get into a major trade war with entire trading block. It's a Western country, a big and prominent one, but one that you can take on with relatively little economic cost Though some, but not the tremendous cost that you would incur by alienating a more powerful patron. So it's a perfect country to go after if you want to send a message to other ones, stay away from our human rights record. Besma Momani is a Middle East expert at the University of Waterloo in Canada, and she wrote this brilliant piece that, Zach, I think you actually flagged yep. uh, to me in the, the Globe and Mail newspaper. Um, and, and she has this great essay. You should definitely read it, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But I just want to read one quote from it. She says, this is less about Canadian foreign policy than it is about the Saudis. This is a new, bold Saudi Arabia trying to make its mark on global and regional affairs, led by the young and very brash Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. This latest move is yet another red line that is being used to rile up nationalists and assert Saudi dominance. And that's exactly how to understand what's going on. It has nothing to do with Canada. Canada didn't do anything differently than it's always done. What's different is MBS. What's different is what's happening in Saudi Arabia and what he's doing. Uh, and I think that's where we'll leave it for this segment. Uh, the one last thing I want to say is that my fiance, who is Canadian, has been getting after us for not talking about Canada enough on the show. So, Hi, honey, I hope you're happy. And, you know, on the next segment on Elsewhere, we'll be talking about something very different, which is some great reporting that Alex did about the North Korean nuclear program. <laughs> I like that it looks something different. Good reporting from Alex. <laughs> If you love Worldly, you'll love Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a weekly podcast that goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Deep Dish covers timely world news and important but underreported stories. Everything from Obama's NATO ambassador discussing the implications of the Trump-Putin summits to the Armenian prime minister calling in real time to speak on the country's revolution. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever overpaid for that perfect pair of pants only to watch them completely fall apart, tear, rip, stretch out, lose their shape? That doesn't happen with Everlane. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials and without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs, so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. And Everlane's clothes just look better. They cost less and they last longer. I mean, you shouldn't have to restock your basic clothes more often than you restock your toothpaste. With Everlane's quality, you won't have to. And right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com worldly. Great Everlane products like the Cashmere Crew, the Silk Short Sleeve Square Shirt, the High Rise Skinny Jean, and the Day Heel. So go check it out. 
It's everlane.com slash worldly. That's everlane.com slash worldly. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. What's your sun sign and your moon sign and your rising sign? Like, I don't know anything about any of this, but the latest episode of Vox's awesome show on Netflix is Astrology Explained. And uh, I'd suggest you go check it out. It explores why so many people across so many cultures still look for meaning in the stars, what horoscopes really are, how they work, work in quotes, and where they come from. The psychological effects at work in astrology, the sometimes friendly, often fraught relationship between astronomy and astrology throughout history, and how the belief in astrology shapes the way that people actually live their lives, and how, as astrology proliferates online, that that's changing over the course of time. So all of that is interesting, even if you, like me, don't really believe in astrology at all. So I'd encourage you to go check out this episode. It's netflix.com slash explained, or just search for Vox on your Netflix portal. Now we're going to talk about a neat piece of North Korea news that Alex actually broke yesterday. Um, Big so scoop. A bit of context. Back in June, obviously the president met with Kim Jong-un, and they signed this statement that had very vague language about what denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula was supposed to be. You know, North Korea getting rid of its weapons. Maybe no one's no one's really sure from the statement. But Alex found out from some super secret sources, what the U.S. was actually offering and how North Korea had responded to it. So walk us through the details. Sure. So in, in multiple meetings that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had with North Korean negotiators since the summit, he's consistently made one request, which is that North Korea must remove 60 to 70 percent of its nuclear bombs within a six to eight month period. Every time he's offered that, the North Koreans have flatly rejected him. And it helps explain a little bit why North Korea started to get quite upset with Pompeo, uh, calling America's demands gangster-like. And it puts some context into why months after Trump effectively said North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat, why North Korea still remains a nuclear threat and shows that diplomacy with North Korea has gone really nowhere. So what we knew, we knew that Mike Pompeo was doing this kind of lower level, like, this is how you actually make a deal. Like, if there were going to be a nuclear agreement, those aren't made by Trump and Kim. Like, they sign this, like, uh, okay, we're going to work together. But that's when you then send your negotiators out to talk to their negotiators, and you sit down and you work out the nitty-gritty. And we knew they were doing this, but we had no idea what the U.S. ask was, the U.S. proposal. And so Alex uncovered this specific U.S. proposal. There's another piece to it. It was the 60 to 70 percent of their nukes in six to eight months. But it was also that they would turn that over to either the U.S., or some yeah. third-party country, right? Right. So the, the other aspect is, and I couldn't figure out exactly who, but the, the the idea is the U.S. or a third party, so probably another country, would take those bombs outside of North Korea and destroy them. And that's actually a very dangerous process because when nuclear bombs are made, they're really only made to go off one way, right? Blow everything up. To dismantle nuclear bombs, they're actually, because it's so difficult— you don't just have to, like, clip a green wire or no, a red No, it's, it's not okay. like Mission Impossible where, okay. like, Simon Pegg does it in one second. It's quite literally, like, it takes a tons of, you know, teams and hazmat suits and blah, 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 and, like, they, it requires a massive process. So for that to happen, it's a big deal. But the, there's a bigger sticking point here. Let's say North Korea said, sure, Mike, we'll hand over 60 70% of our bombs. America has no idea how many bombs North Korea has. Like, the estimates are all over the place, right? The estimates typically range—I mean, I've seen ranges from 20 to 65. Like, right. it, it, it could be all kinds of that, right? Right. I think 65 is kind of the new consensus. So let's say North Korea says, all right, we'll give you 30 bombs. 
it's possible North Korea has 300, right? Because they haven't declared right. how many they have. Right. So, yeah, we'll agree to 60 to 70 percent, but I have no idea to figure out what you just handed me. Yeah. Like, look, it's important to take a step back from the details, which we've been talking about, to understand why this really matters. And it matters because the U.S. isn't trying to accommodate North Korea behind the scenes. It isn't trying to come to a realistic agreement. What Pompeo is presenting with them is something that was obviously going to be unacceptable for the North Koreans. Obviously, 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 obviously. So all of the rhetoric about Trump doing canny diplomacy, trying to work towards something that could actually end up you know, solving the North Korean nuclear crisis, none of it seems to be true. It seems almost like the hardliners inside the Trump administration are kind of dictating the terms of diplomacy, which people like John Bolton especially clearly oppose, even though they have to say it's fine in public, and doing so in a way that makes it very difficult for there to be any kind of incremental progress, even as Trump is declaring the problem solved. North Korea experts I spoke to before and after the piece came out split, as you can imagine, but the minority opinion is this is a good idea, that effectively by asking for so much at the, at the top that they're looking for a big down payment and shows that North Korea is serious. And then maybe the U.S. has offered some concession. It could be the state sponsor of terrorism list. It could be sanctions. It could be it could be removing obstacles so Kim could go to the U.N. General Assembly in September. It could even be building a hotel off the coast of For example, North Korea. Yeah. Trump Hotel Pyongyang. Yeah, right. absolutely. Would visit on 10 out of 10 on TripAdvisor. The majority opinion is that this is a bad idea, that as, as Zach alluded to, the North Koreans were never going to accept this. As one expert said, it's effectively an ask for unilateral capitulation. So at the end of the day, it clearly looks like North Korea is going to reject, and as they have. Is that a bargaining tool? Are they really this angry? It's hard to know. But it also, like you said, this goes to how they're seem to be souring on Mike Pompeo. And, well, and, on, and on talking with the United States in general. No, but it seems that like uh, so there's been a lot of reporting that they just don't want to deal with Pompeo anymore. Because I would imagine they think they can probably get one over on Trump and he's easier to deal with because he doesn't like dealing with, like, numbers, which I understand. But also um, prestige, right? You're talking to the prestige. president of the United States. Right. But, like, so there was this thing where Mike Pompeo was supposed to go meet with Kim and Pompeo got there and Kim didn't show up. Because he went to a potato farm. He went to a potato farm instead. So it basically shows that, like, since this big summit, we really still don't have much to show and the negotiations aren't going great. And on that cheery note, uh, we'll let you guys go for the evening, morning, afternoon, whenever you're listening to us. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, our social media manager, Julie Bogan, and encourage you to rate, subscribe, review, listen on Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, Worldly is there. So, you know, subscribe and tell your friends about us. Hey there, podcast listeners. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Guramurthy, and we co-host a podcast called Displaced, all about the refugee crisis. Check out this week's episode with Jeff Mulligan, who talked with us about something he calls collective intelligence, or really how machines and humans can collaborate to solve problems like dealing with epidemics, predicting war and conflict, and collecting data during natural disasters. Displaced is a collaboration between the International Rescue Committee, where Grant and I work, and Vox Media. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.